0: Hello and welcome to this bonus episode of The Violin Chronicles. My encyclopedia of Luthiers is the podcast normally only available for Patreon members, but this week I am offering you this sampler for free. If you would like to listen to more episodes and support the podcast, sign up to the Patreon website today at Patreon forward slash The Violin Chronicles. Without further ado, here it is. Hello, my name is Linda Lespe, I'm a violin maker and restorer.
1: And I'm Antoine Lespe, I'm also a violin maker uh, and do mostly restoring these days. And we're married and uh, we have a workshop in Sydney, Australia, together.
0: We do, we do indeed. Um, And we're here today to talk about Andrea Armati... Mm. Who is kind of, he's kind of the the grandfather, yes, of the whole family of the all the Amartis.
1: So in the in the podcast, uh, the Violin Chronicles, you were talking about how we never know which one is which in the Amati.
0: Yeah, we're always getting confused, aren't we? So
1: Andrea, who is the f- first one, right?
0: Yeah, he's the first one. Okay. And yeah, and so in the Violin Chronicles, it's very in depth, and f- this. This podcast is uh like a an abbreviation. Like if you can't be bothered listening to all the mm-hmm. all the other episodes, you just come here and you have a quick shot of who's who. Um so Andrea Amati. Uh he was born in 1505 and died in 1577, uh, which would have made him 72. So
1: mm-hmm.
0: which is a good age, I suppose.
1: Yeah, what do we know about his origin?
0: I don't know. He kind of just comes out of nowhere. We don't really know where he was born.
1: Okay. So what's the first mention of of him that we we know of and I mean that we think it's him?
0: Um, well, uh when I was speaking to Carlo Chiesa, he he puts forward that so there's a lot of different sort of theories of where Andrea comes from, but it's probably the most Uh, The most logical one is that he worked for someone called Giovanni Leonardo da Martinino in Cremona because uh, Martinino is described in a census as a a dealer of fabrics and secondhand goods and he has two assistants that live with him and uh, one of them is called Andrea and they're described as the...
1: Leuters.
0: Yeah. Which...
1: Is Liutaior is violin maker nowadays? Uh, Liutas is very close, and we think it might be, it might be a violin maker. And yeah, it's, it's called a, Andrea. It mm, mm, yeah, might and that, be him.
0: Yeah, that could make sense that he uh, was apprenticed to someone. It's the
1: right town. It's the right time. Mm-hmm. So, and it's the right profession. It's the right name. Mm-hmm. Might be him. What do we know about Martinengo.
0: Uh, so we think he was a Jewish convert to Catholicism, uh, and a lot of probably coming from Spain, I assume, because a lot of Jewish people converted to Catholicism in the during mm. the, the the Inquisition. Uh, and and Cremona was a fairly liberal city, um, full of artisans and commerce, and and he wouldn't have been he would have been able to live and work quite well. Sort of in the people would have understood that he was a Jewish convert. Mm-hmm. to Catholicism. Yeah, just an example of Cremona being uh, a very enterprising city. At one point, Venice had banned like all the printing of Jewish texts and there was a printer in Cremona who was Jewish and he just took up the printing of all these Jewish texts. And So for a period of time in the history of uh, Jewish printed literature in that area, it all came from Cremona.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, interesting they picked up the... Uh, Market,
0: yeah, and then at one point Venice said, "Actually, no, we can, we, we can, can start- print it again. Yeah, <laughs> we can print again." <laughs> so they, yeah, went back to uh Venice.
1: Yeah, just to show that, that yeah, Cremona was always trying to make it, trying to, to take take the market.
0: Yeah, I think they were just full of of Russia,
1: of, of Venice.
0: Yeah, lots of enterprising people. Yeah, in the city.
1: All right, and so the year we're talking about, uh you were talking in your first. Uh, one of the first episodes as well about those um turbulent times in the uh, Italian history, northern Italy. Mm-hmm. Um, that's when Andrea grew up. So, the we in the early 1500s or 16th century remind us what happens there in Cremona.
0: Oh, yeah. So, there was the Italian wars happening, and mm-hmm. so a lot of armies would be coming through the city. It was very um. Uh, the the city of Cremona was Venetian, uh, then it was Milanese, and then uh, then it became Spanish.
1: Yeah, it's a yeah very turbulent time, very uncertain, lots of people dying everywhere, or and not sure what's the future. But despite that, the it looks like the artisanal class was doing all right.
0: Yeah, I mean, it was a city that had sixty percent of its inhabitants were artisans. And then when the Spanish sort of took over that part, um, uh, Milan, uh, Cremona, when it gained control, it actually created uh, the Spanish Empire was uh, very effective and it created a, a peaceful uh, time mm. uh, in that part of the world. It, it, ironically, the, it created a lot of stability. Yeah, And so from... So that was in Andre's early life. But then, when he started working, he was in sort of a pretty stable environment under the under Spanish rule.
1: And that artisanal class, so the artisans, people working with their hands, um, so violin makers are part of that. And uh, they were kind of skilled, educated at some level. They could, you know, they they had to be able to read and count and have a relatively high level of literacy
0: yeah so Cremona was um famous for well they were very proud of their schools and uh and so their middle class we were all quite well educated they would uh you would go to school you'd learn to read and write, which wasn't the case everywhere uh so you had this educated um lots of artisans quite educated and a pretty thriving uh city and this is where he starts uh really becoming known Andrea for making his Instruments. So Andrea um, grows up in Cremona, he gets married and he has his first child uh, who is a boy, who is a boy called Antonio uh, and he'll go on to become one of the Amati brothers.
1: So they have also, uh, Andrea and his wife also have three daughters
0: mm-hmm.
1: in the coming years, Elisabeth or Elisabeth, Apolina and e Varelia.
0: Uh, yeah, so his business is doing well. He would have been making not just violins or the string quartet instruments, but it's the Renaissance. He's making all kinds of different Renaissance instruments. could
1: um, be harps and lutes and
0: theobs. Viola d'amores.
1: Maybe Renaissance guitars. I don't know. Is yeah. that later? Yeah. Um, yeah, a bit. Yeah, so sometimes we, nowadays, it's very specialized. We. Kind of even we don't usually don't do double bass in our workshop here in Sydney, and at the time you had to do kind of everything. You were you were kind of an instrument repairer or instrument maker. You were doing whatever, pay the bill.
0: Yeah, and then in 1550, when Andrea is 45, he has his second son, Girolamo, uh, and he with his older brother Antonio will go on to become. The Amati brothers.
1: Okay, so that's the second thing to remember is and Andrea is a, the patriarch, the the first one in the line, and then there is the Amati brothers, Antonio and Girolamo.
0: Yeah, with a quite a big age gap between yeah. them. Uh, and when Girolamo is about ten, the Amati workshop gets this order from Charles the Ninth in France. Um, who most people think uh, it was Catherine de Medici, his mother, sort of instigated, and uh, it's a really big order. It's thirty-eight instruments, and and
1: it's for a royal court, so it's like yeah, very good for your c- CV.
0: Mm. So he's not just uh, making little instruments for locals. He's uh, he's really got a reputation he's of a good workshop, and so when you know the king of France wants instruments, he orders them. From
1: Where else? Cremona.
0: The Amatis.
1: So, um, yeah, it means somehow that Reputation was or already beginning, even though he's kind of known as the first one to kind of um, have that sort of shape of the instrument.
0: Yeah, yeah, the violin shape that I we mean, know today. I we, was... we've
1: learned that from your podcast that... Uh, <laughs> In Brescia, they were doing instruments beforehand, and like even we know that uh, Imana Dasaloma not have been the first violin maker in Brescia. and same way, maybe Amati wasn't the first maker in Cremona, but it's the first one that we know of. Sorry, he's very famous, and he kind of develops the the shape of the instrument as we know, as we know it.
0: Yeah, this outline.
1: One thing that we that helps us to know that he exists, are the labels. What's different? What's um, new about putting a label in, in an instrument?
0: Yeah, so normally instruments weren't labeled. Andrea, he puts a label in his instruments. The Brescians put labels in, but they would just say, you know, Dasala, Brescia, whereas Andrea would put the date Which just makes it easier for like it makes it easier for us with a date we know exactly when. So from
1: from 1542 apparently he's started to record the the date,
0: uh, the date,
1: the date, his name, um, and the location, Cremona.
0: So yeah, so when Girolamo is about ten, they have this royal order, and we can assume that Antonio helped his father Andrea. Uh, with this order because he would be in his early twenties. Uh, so you
1: said he was thirty-eight instruments. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the first violins were actually small size compared to the standards of today. Would they uh, be
0: that, like would we say they're seven eighths?
1: Yeah maybe we call them seven eighths or ladies violin. I don't <laughs> know if we can still say that, but um, they're about three four two, mm-hmm. three hundred and forty two millimeters for the size of the body.
0: Oh, that's um I think it's three and a half inches. 13 and oh, inches.
1: 13. Thirteen and a half inches for uh inches friends. Um
0: for the friends of the inches.
1: Yes. So that's a small violins, uh, and they were the first violins. And so that's the first group of instruments. The second group uh was second violins, and w- they were, were they were called the larger p- the large patterns, but they actually what we call today a full-size instrument, so 355 mm uh, for the body, or 14 inches. So that's what we consider today as a full-size instrument. They were the second violin. They were the large model, the large patterns.
0: Mm-hmm. And um, then the violas?
1: The violas um, were large tenor violas, and um, there are four remaining uh, large tenor violas that we know of today um, and all but one have been reduced in size so there sh- they must have been about 470 millimeters, or 18.5 inches in length, that's a very large viola uh, today what's considered more or less standard for viola is between 400 and maybe 420 oh. Or uh, that's, you know, it's hard to like pin down what's standard for viola. Well, a viola, that,
0: a viola that's 440 is, is a big viola.
1: Yeah. So nowadays, let's say between 15 inches and 17 inches would be most of the violas played today in orchestras. Yeah. And so those, these ones were, sorry.
0: So those ones were 470, 470 millimeters.
1: These ones were 18.5 inches. They, mm. they were huge. So small violins, Wait,
0: That um, you could—that's like—is what—that's like five, five, five centimeters larger than, yes. than what we're used to.
1: So there are small violins, uh, larger violins, violas, large tenor violas, and then cellos. Um, which um, we think we've got rem- six—about six of them remaining today—and all of them have been. Um, reduced in size, uh, but they must have been quite large instruments. Um, certainly more than 790 millimeters compared to the standard nowadays, is probably 755, 755 millimeters. But these ones were 790 millimeters, so um,
0: and they were really fat,
1: yes, because they've been big-
0: with the paintings on them we can see they've taken out um, where the center joint is on the back they would take out that wood and so uh, we've been able to reconstruct what they look like and they're very very wide
1: That's right so that's how we know that they were uh, what they would have been um
0: and they could have had five strings because for could.
1: instance one has uh like a lady and a column painted at the back on the back and from the Proportion of the lady, she's yeah, she's clearly missing something, and uh, the column too. But I guess a column could be any size, but yeah. uh, in terms of the yeah, we we can know for sure that they were they were larger and longer. So the thirty-eight instruments, how did he manage to do thirty-eight and to do like a sort of a, a lot that was um, consistent?
0: So he used an inside mold and he probably would have made them in a series so they were all identical and he probably had people to come in and help he probably asked uh, employed yeah. some extra hands
1: that's also one of the other big differences between Brescia and Cremona is that idea of having an inside mold in Cremona allows you to be faster in a way and to be more consistent to be to do always the same rib structure size always have the same measurements where in Brescia they would create maybe they would start with the back we think and then or with the ribs but without a without a a mold or pattern to mount the rib on so more flexibility in Brescia but um, less easy to reproduce each time they would be different
0: he makes these instruments for the French court. He's, it sort of sets him up. He's well known. He's a master violin maker. In the episodes about Gasparo da Salo, we talk about how things are getting a bit tight economically. There's a war in France. They're having a they're having a civil war, and a lot of their clients are French. So things get a little bit stressful. He even has to uh, he even has to borrow a little bit of money during this time. From a neighbor, uh, but he's able to pay it back. Um, but then he's he's getting older.
1: Yeah. So at the time of the order of the Court of France, he's about fifty five.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm. Then, uh, so he's getting older, and his youngest son, Girolamo, he gets uh, gets married to Lucrezia Cornetti, and she comes to live with them in the family home.
1: Lucrezia Cornetti.
0: And so, even though even though he's a successful businessman, uh, he's never he's always rented the house and the workshop. So you have to imagine um, the bottom floor would be the workshop, and the family would live um, above it, which was sort of a normal setup. They'd never had enough money to buy outright their home.
1: Yeah, until the last few years of his life, where he's probably in his sixties when they managed to buy a house, right? Oh, late sixties. Late sixties.
0: Uh, A few years after he finally has enough money to buy his house. He passes away. At
1: the age of 72, in 1577, Andrea dies and he leaves.
0: On Christmas Eve. So that sort of is a bummer for Christmas.
1: (laughs) Ruined Christmas.
0: (laughs) It's ruined Christmas.
1: Yeah. That's one cold winter's night on Christmas Eve. In 1577, at the age of 72, Andrea Amati died. So the patriarch of that family dies and he leaves um, his sons, the brothers Amati, you've been following, Antonio and Girolamo. They take over. They carry on the family legacy and the business. We'll talk about them in the next episode.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So it's all there. They've got the workshop and... uh... He gives it to his sons.
1: And, spoiler, it won't go exactly as (sighs) planned, but we'll talk about it later.
0: Now, this part, we're going to talk about the uh, construction techniques, kind of identifying features of Andrea Amati instruments. Charles Beer stated that Andrea Amati
1: brought the shape of the violin to perfection and can justifiably be called the father of the true Cremonese violin.
0: So there you go. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> what the, is it? Yeah, what father. is he saying?
1: He's talking. I think he's talking about the way they make instruments, in the way that they use um, internal mold to to mount the the rib structure on. So that's in that way he's the the true father of the Cremonese violins, as Charles Bier say, says. Um,
0: or maybe he preferred them to the, the Russian ones, the Cremonese ones. Because just
1: to put in perspective, Antonio Stradivari, which is probably the most famous makers in the world, the E comes in the picture one hundred and fifty years later. Yeah. Than Andrea Amati, one hundred and fifty years later than Andrea Amati. So um, this is very early in violin making, and yet the the pattern, the way of making an instrument will stay the same. And so when Stradivari makes his beautiful instruments, it's already um, a 150-year-old tradition and he's following that he's making them as Amati would have done.
0: Yeah. Uh, Characteristics of Andrei Amati is that he pays a lot of attention to detail. He has really beautifully constructed instruments uh, he uses, as we said, the the inside mould to shape uh, on which he built his rib structure, put his corner blocks and side linings, uh, differing to. In it...
1: Brescia, you were saying in your podcast on on Dasalo that they don't didn't necessarily used uh, linings inside inside.
0: No, and sometimes not the blocks even.
1: Yep. All right. So that's yeah. It's a big difference.
0: And even other traditions in, say, Germany and France uh, didn't use the mm. inside mold. They'd have different techniques again.
1: Yeah, some countries they used the neck as the top block, mm. and so the the ribs were kind of mortised in the the neck, the base of the neck. Uh, so Andrea, in that way, he kind of designed the 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 way of making violins as we know today and so you're talking about um
0: so we've established inside mold the ribs were made by gluing the c-bouts first and then the upper and lower ribs were often in one piece one rib that would do the whole top and the whole bottom
1: how do you know that the c's were put in first
0: Ah, so you can tell this because they're um
1: well because the you can see the face of one rib and in that case you you glue the sea see first and then you carve them and then you put the you glue the the top or the bottom rib yeah so exactly. that's the one you see
0: like I said the top rib was often in one piece but when people modernized instruments uh, before the neck would have been nailed on through the rib uh, but when you uh, refit a neck in a modern setup you have to cut into that top rib so those top ribs don't exist in one piece anymore. And there is a little uh, mark that you can look out for on the bottom rib if it's still in one piece. And that's like a little nick in the middle kind of to to mark where the center of the joint is. So if you turn the violin upside down and look at the, the butt end pin, you'll sometimes see like a scribe mark or just a little on top of the body, a little triangle. Um, yeah,
1: I've seen that on a Guarnet del Gesù recently.
0: Well inside the instruments the the blocks and the linings Andrea uses spruce blocks and willow linings and in some cases the blocks and the linings are both in willow. Okay. And that and that was pretty standard for the Cremonese making except uh Del Gesù was an exception he used spruce for his linings and his blocks.
1: Yep. And as we said in Russia, that sometimes they didn't use linings, and sometimes they didn't use blocks. So,
0: so also another thing you can see in Andrea's instruments is a, a pin in the center of the back.
1: Yeah, so it's kind of in the middle. So when you look through the F of the an instrument, you look to the inside back. Uh, sometimes you can see uh, sort of a a circle, a small circle, a small disc. Dot. A dot, yeah, kind of in the area. If you were to trace two lines between the corners uh, diagonally, that would hit the center, and that's usually where it is. Not sure what, are, what what is it for.
0: Well, it's kind of a mystery. Like there's a lot of different sort of theories, but some people think it's caused by a compass for your, the measurements. Uh, you'd stick a compass in the middle, and they would take measurements to. Um, that
1: would be a big hole for compass. Compass, <laughs> but.
0: well, maybe they had to keep coming back and retaking measurements to be sure, or they, um, or or it could have been a point where they would measure thicknesses.
1: I heard that it could have been. Um, sort of a small pyramid they put in, and that way when they, no, it doesn't work.
0: Re-thicknessed.
1: When they do the arching at the back, yeah, they know when to stop. When to stop, but it doesn't work. No, it doesn't. No, because they would do the arching first. Yeah, wouldn't be they? The contrary.
0: Um, and yeah, it I'm often sure. it'll often correspond to the thickest point of the back, where that dot is um if it hasn't been rethicknessed. So in instruments where it, they've been reduced they'll often reduce them from the center joint so you you'll lose that dot. So the Andrea instruments that have been reduced don't have that anymore. Mm. Yep. But the the Del Gesù um that was in the workshop the other day. Yeah. It had all the it, it had, had the, the dot. Yeah. It had all the characteristics. Oh,
1: so yeah, again something to 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 research um if you if you know the answer you can send us a, a message uh, that's uh, I'm sure there are plenty of things written on it but um, so something we that... still we don't know and we have to to research a bit more
0: so and sometimes the dot would go all the way through to the other side and sometimes it won't
1: so it's like yeah, it's 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 like if they put a pin of another wood uh, a wooden pin but a conical one like a, a pointy one. Not yeah. not a
0: like the tip of a pencil.
1: Yeah, exactly. Like this.
0: So you can say in general Andre's instruments are tidy on the inside. Tidy yet quickly finished. And all the sort of the really meticulous attention to detail was on the outside, which is
1: So you can can you see tool marks? For oh,
0: it's I don't know. It's pretty it's but it's pretty tidy.
1: Okay. Tidy in being what do you like mean well,
0: coming back to the Brescian instruments, there's a lot of a lot of tool marks and scorch marks and things like that. So it is comparable to the Brescians. It's very neat. Okay, but not to the point of obsession on the inside. Yep. Yeah. Um. So wood, the wood choice.
1: All right. So Andrea, as like 99% of uh, violin making, he uses uh, spruce for the top and maple for the rib, the scroll and the back and probably that's yeah that's the spruce is um, um, is a wood that carries the sound very well and it's uh, a type of pine like a, it grows has to grow in a region that is very harsh and har- a harsh environment for the tree to grow in. So it has to grow very slowly for hundreds of years. So it's usually a very hard condition for the wood to grow in.
0: Yeah, and as I was talking about in the Violin Chronicles podcast, Cremona was really this centre where a lot of uh, tradespeople came through and they had a close connection to Venice. So there was a lot of uh, import-export. Uh, so I imagine they... Was either locally, or it's there is a possibility that they could have got their wood from further afar. That's not impossible for someone working in Cremona with this huge sort of traffic flowing through.
1: Yeah, but it's usually still the same same areas nowadays. Basically, for the see, it's the Tyrol, or you know, Bulgaria, Montenegro, this type of mountainous, harsh country. So the. Yes, yeah, the slow growth uh, would would mean that the grain, the lines on the wood would be very close together because if you, as you know, that each, each line is like one year. So you want it to have a very slow growth. So the lines to be very close to each other and at the same time you want them to be regular. So over the years you want them, uh, space between them to be the same.
0: So Andrea would use... The cut of his maple was sometimes quarter cut sometimes slab cut and or or half slab cut, and there are a lot of one piece backs and even one piece fronts so um,
1: quarter cut is like a pizza piece so it's a way of cutting or cheese yeah piece of uh cheese uh, of from around yeah, so it's a way of cutting the the tree um and slab cut would be like making a plank. So making parallel cuts through the the trunk instead of having that cuts that all point to the middle, to the center of the wood.
0: And, and so there were more slab cut instruments with Andrea and the brothers. Um, I feel like the brothers, there are a lot of instruments with slab cut. Um, and then that changes with niccolo niccolo sort of stops using the slab cut and then at one point it's really just quarter cut um, on his instruments so the wood for the scrolls so even when the the wood for the back and the sides are highly flamed sometimes what we'll do when we when we make an instrument we'll have all sort of matching wood so if we have a highly flamed back we'll have highly flamed ribs and a highly flamed scroll but a peculiarity with Andrea and the armatis are that the the maple for the scroll is often um, not highly flamed. Uh, and
1: Well, that's easier to carve if you're sculpting. You don't want the flames because it's it just... Uh,
0: yeah, it chips out. It's yeah, harder it chips to... chips out, yeah. So... And there's also an idea that because the scroll is a sculptural element, if it was highly flamed, that would take away from the 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 scroll type Yeah, I think it's just easier. You think it's easier? Well, I think a scroll is kind of fancy in itself. You don't need to, you might not necessarily need to add to it with flames. Uh, So, yeah, so you'll often see the scrolls not highly figured on Andrea's work. So the
1: model uh, for the scroll, that's uh, one that you can see. You can see a consistency in the model of the scroll. Uh, for the four generations of Amati and beyond. So basically they use that Fibonacci...
0: Um, sequence.
1: Sequence, yeah. So The snail. Yeah, the fern or the snail or that that beautiful volute that you see in nature. It's, um, it's been described by Fibonacci in mathematics. It's a way of having a sort of a perfect scroll
0: and that's very renaissancey, yeah. As well.
1: Using that principle, okay. yeah. um,
0: they liked scrolls in the Renaissance.
1: Yep. So some makers, uh, where we're doing less so um, later on, uh, some makers would bend that the, that scroll a little bit more, that volute. Um, I'm thinking of uh, Guadagnini or or Coopers, the way of. Of uh, flattening some part of the scroll, but for Amatis, they're kind of uh, nice and regular in what you would imagine a scroll to be.
0: Yeah, yeah, and and yeah, and what uh, Andrea sort of lays down is just the four generations of Amatis will continue. Like no one really changes the pattern of the scroll. Mm-hmm. A characteristic of Andrea's scrolls is if you look at the back, the heel at the end of the neck. Um, It's semicircular. Some makers have, it's more of a leaf type shape, like Guarnero de Gizu, his is more sort of overly leaf shaped. Uh, So Andrea's is is a semicircle at the back of the scroll. At the bottom. At the bottom.
1: And again, to compare with, uh, to contrast with the Brescian uh, scrolls, in Brescia there is the volute where the scrolls were a bit more, Primitive, in the sense, they were they were a bit less uh,
0: spontaneous.
1: Yeah, they were more spontaneous. They were a bit less uh, regular and a bit less perfect in that, in the sense of fitting to that Fibonacci principle. And sometimes for Magini or Dasalo, you could, you can see one less turn or for Magini one more turn sometimes. Although we don't really have a lot of of them left in the world real in scrolls, but um, yeah, that's a clear difference.
0: Uh, yeah, so it's a semicircular um shape at the bottom. Uh, the They have a flat peg box and the flatness continues into the first turn of the volute. And there's sort of the, the gouging out or the hollowing out of the scroll really starts on the second turn of the spiral before the comma, and from there it's quite deep. So it goes flat, 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 deep, 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 deep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then the fluting on the peg box is it's the fluting's well rounded and deep, especially in the last quarter turn of the fluting. Oh yeah, so the um, so the fluting of the scroll comes up and over the front and then it sort of just stops and becomes one large curve. They don't continue the two lines all the way under into the neck. So that's um, Andrea and his sons would do that. It would just become one. One curve, yep.
1: and on some well-preserved scrolls, uh, you can see little scribe marks where the peg box and volute were laid out.
0: Yeah, the scribe mark down the center. Yeah,
1: so again, they would. It that means that they would have used patterns uh, that they can reproduce, and same idea of that we talked about early on about the the f- fact of doing a series of instruments and rep- being able to reproduce the same characteristics so using patterns to go faster
0: yeah you can see they've traced it out on a yeah predetermined pattern and just with the fluting uh so you've got andrea and his sons they would come around to the front and sort of just stop and it would become one big curve and niccolo and his pupils they would continue the ridge all the way down round to the throat so that's the difference between uh the father and the brothers and then niccolo Andreas violas and cellos, they have.
1: Yeah, sometimes you can see on cellos of viola scrolls. uh, you can see a little step, like on a on a cello. Of course, you have a step.
0: Yeah, so a viola that looks a bit like a. And tiny And sometimes cello.
1: you have cellos that yeah look like a tiny cello, in that they have like this.
0: Where the nut angle. top nut is. Yes,
1: where you your first position is basically, is that that angle.
0: So for his violas and his cellos, he would do that. Because some people, for uh, violas, they wouldn't do that. Andrea's son, Girolamo, who starts making violas with the kind of violin-type scroll.
1: So what's typical, apparently, about Andrea's instruments is that step on viola viola scrolls. And uh, the first scrolls for violas that are violin-type, that don't have the, the, the step... Uh, that's for his son, Girolamo, from 1615. And we don't know. Well, Andrea appears not to have made any contra altos, only tenors, so only big ones, not violas of the size we know of today.
0: That we know of, yeah. That...
1: Only very large ones that had to be recut.
0: Okay. Um, so for the perfling, uh typical Andrea Amati purfling.
1: So the perfling is that inlaid... Um, pieces of wood that we put in the violin as you know so it's th- usually three pieces black, white, black and so for the black wood Andrea uses um, fruit wood that is uh, stained dyed and um, then the white strip are either maple or poplar so when experts look with a magnifying glass usually that's what they want to see they want to see um, a stained fruit, w- fruit wood for the black and a white strip. Uh, they want to see the, w- the maple or poplar for the white. And usually the, the small radial ray of dots for the slab cut facing up for the white. The black should also be slab cut.
0: Yeah, so this is a, it creates like a softer black. It's not as uh, pronounced harsh black as ebony that the um, Brescians like to use. And sometimes you even have the feeling that it bleeds into the, into the others.
1: And then the, so Andrea starts doing like this, and then his sons uh, follow follow him and do the same. Um, it's only when, um, so Antonio and Girolamo would do the same, but it's only when Nicolo uh, was working with his son Girolamo II. Uh, that it starts to change and he starts to use poplar for the whites and the black are the same as before.
0: So it goes from maple to poplar for the whites. Yeah,
1: we, we said that he also used poplar for this, the whites. No. Uh, it doesn't really switch. Well, I
0: think it's like Niccolo just uses poplar, yeah.
1: From Nicolo from and Gerolamo, apparently it's only poplar for the white.
0: And where the when the purfling had to be joined up um, in the mortise uh, often it's down the bottom, and they would use a forty five degree cut uh to join the wood pieces next to each other, so you just see like this angle it's not sort of one sometimes people just layer it one on top of the other, and there's this um uh, you can see the forty five degree angle okay.
1: and another characteristic of Andrew's uh, purfling is the at the in the corners or the sting, we call it sometimes um, they are not centered they don't point to the center of the corner they veer towards the c-belt so that the distance is closer to the c-belt than to the the lower belt or the the upper belt yeah
0: and another thing you can look out for as a characteristic is um, pins uh, small maple pins just above the purfling, um, sometimes kind of half under the purfling. Uh, Nicolo's pins go under or half under the purfling, and um, and in recut instruments you're not going to see that because they would have been near the center and cut out, and um, they don't uh, the bellies don't have the pins anymore as well with the modernising of the instruments. Um, they would have been taken out.
1: And uh, coming back to the bee stings, Nicolo sometimes. He doesn't he doesn't de- deflect the beasting, so his um, purfling would point to the center of the of the corner. That's for Nicolo. Mm. Andrea is different, veering towards the cibell. Okay.
0: So uh, Andrea's arching is quite full and strong, and um, you sort of notice with the brothers they scoop it out a bit more. Um, and Niccolo would come back to the fuller arching in his long pattern. Um, like Andrea used. If you scoop out the sort of towards the edges too much, it's thought to limit the vibrating capacity of the instrument. So um, that fuller arching was better for a more uh, powerful instrument as opposed to sort of overly scooped out Mm -hmm. around the edges. On the sound holes, on the F wings, it's hollowed out on that little bit on the side. Uh, and mm-hmm. that's consistent among all the amatis, they have that. Surprisingly, Andrea's archings are generally lower and flatter than those of his sons, and they're more sort of sort similar to what Stradivari did. So Stradivari was, his instruments look back more on Andrea than, say, the brothers in the the influence of arching.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And, uh, well, Stradivari had an amatis period, Uh, Where he copied, uh, where his instruments resembled um, Amati style instruments, and that that period was from 1670 to 1690, and that was sort of derived from Niccolo's work because he was uh, Stradivari's work was quite close to Niccolo's work, his Amati's period. But then some people think, well, his golden period, where his arching changes to a sort of tighter arching, could uh, he could owe that more to Andrea
1: more influenced to Andrea.
0: Yeah, so it's similar arching.
1: Okay. The varnish. The varnish. So Andrea is a beautiful high quality varnish. The colour uh, being more brown, brown, or orange, brownish, orange, uh, golden yellow. Uh, often the on the brothers instruments there is uh, a golden colour.
0: <laughs> They're all different aren't they? Um, so for the sound holes, there's, this is sort of a, an element of personal expression. Uh, there's also acoustic qualities to sound holes and the Armati sound holes are often widely set, uh, Andrea's, are often widely set apart and well-rounded, very carefully, uh, cut and skillfully executed. It wasn't just, you see some instruments are just, it's, it's a bit like. They've just chewed it out. Um, they have really beautifully carved sound holes.
1: Yeah. So you said that with Andrea, they're quite widely set apart from from each other. Mm. Um, like a fish. And then with the generations, like with the next generations of uh, of Amatis, they start to um, grow closer to each, uh, get closer to each other, and uh, they slant close together, mm. slightly. Yep. And also there is I mean yeah it used to say to be said that the, the they vary a bit in the the shape and the design and uh, maybe they were altered as well along the years some of them but yeah there is a little bit of it's not always so consistent I find on the on the f uh, between yeah. some instruments so that's maybe something um he would have had a, a pattern for it but then maybe i don't know what happened
0: he could have cut freehand yeah
1: and maybe maybe they were recut maybe they were more the same but then they were changed along the years i don't know
0: i mean and I sometimes you start out with a pattern and you're cutting and then you're like oh this is turning sort <laughs> of personal like personal model
1: yeah but when you see the the skill yeah the craftsmanship yeah you can imagine he could he was good, a good craftsman, so should not have had any problems making the F. Yeah, I don't know.
0: And then those notches, they, um, they, sometimes they're a bit rounded, um, and then sometimes with like two straight cuts.
1: Yeah. What's uh, interesting, I think, in that period uh, for the, the sound holes is that the, the top olive is usually quite big, and uh, almost as big as the the lower one for on some instruments. Uh, later on, like 150 years after that, with Stradivari, you see, it will, it's usually very small on the top, the top olive, and and larger on the the lower one. But
0: yeah, optically, if they're the same size, they appear bigger on the top.
1: Yeah. But so for sometimes it was more like this.
0: Yeah. So sometimes that. Yeah. He'll have the same size of the olive on the top and the bottom. Yeah, which is uh, changes later.
1: And it's also, yeah, that that makes it look very, very old, very early violin making. I find. Yeah. It's something you find as well, a bit in the Brescian school.
0: Yeah. Mm, yeah. Yep, That's true.
1: a similarity. It's for very early instruments, usually there. And I've heard once that um, if you f- flip the bottom half of the the F, it makes more like a C that uh, you can find sometimes on, on and. Oh, yeah.
0: So they could have yeah. had a model that was like it's, two?
1: Yeah, it's closer to that pattern. And then along the years, it gets more and more different. But with the early violins, it's very close. They usually have very small...
0: Yeah, so if you had yeah, if your the the F hole pattern was just half of it and then use it to for the top and all, yeah. Interesting. Sometimes in the workshop we get that little Niccolo Amati. That's a three quarter, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And so so even up to Niccolo um Andre's grandson, they were still making those smaller sized mm. first violins, those little ones.
1: Yes. So I guess even even for Strad the the size of the of an instrument evolves in his lifetime like we see his first period uh we call it the longue in french like the the long patterns and it's only his golden period you know that we all copy today that are 755 uh for the for the body size so there are still variations in the yeah. In, in the way they build instruments,
0: i were still making different. Yeah, it's not like they get to to Niccolo Amati or Strad and boom, their violins are all that no, one size.
1: No, it's it's not it's not set in, in stone. So you can you can still have some variations between the makers and probably between the the countries as well. Um, mm-hmm. Even even in the 20th century, early 20th century, you see. Usually when they're a bit big, uh, they it's so one of the clues that they are from Germany.
0: Yeah, <laughs> the big German. <laughs> um,
1: so I don't know, maybe they had a, a big instrument to start with and they started copy this one. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's interesting. So It's not always exactly 755 uh, for violin. You know, it's, it's not 355. as... 355. Yes, yeah, 355, sorry, for violin, 755 for cellos. There, there are some variations between makers and between countries mm. and along the years, so you can't be all, be it's okay. not too rigid.
0: Well, thank you for joining me, Antoine.
1: You're welcome. <laughs> Pleasure. <laughs>